When we say never, do we actually really mean never? When I was 14 years old, in 1988, I declared that I would never wear pink again. My name tag's usually pink. And that I would never wear lace again. And probably most of you, some of you have seen me in lace. She is wearing green. Her eyeshadow is brown. Her blush is brown. Her lipstick's brown. And I guarantee that her fingernail polish was some shade of earth. I also said that I would never wear long hair again. Mm, we're getting close to that. That might actually come true. When I was thinking about nevers, when I was 19, I said that I, would never, that I was never going to have kids. <laughs> I have four teenagers living in my house down in the basement. And as you can imagine, having four teenagers, we have heard them use the word never quite frequently as well. I hate school, I'm never going again, I hate pie, I've never liked pie, why do you keep trying to get me to like pie? And then a bedroom door slams and I hear, I am never talking to you again. And I'm like, amen? <laughs> two girls, two boys, probably happened more than once. Our story today, I think about promises and I think about, do we keep our promises? If never is sometimes not never, do we actually keep our promises? Did I keep my pinky promises when I was a kid? And then I realized that I actually don't very often say, I promise. And I wasn't really impressed with myself when I realized that. But I think perhaps unconsciously I say, I don't say, I promise very often in an effort to maybe protect myself from making myself a liar later. Our scripture today, our passage, is going to give us a promise of never again that we can believe in. Open your books, your Bibles, Judges chapter 9. We're going to read verses 15 through 22. Oh, did I say Judges? Just kidding. Judges is on Wednesday night. Hebrews <laughs> chapter 9, verses 15 through 22. I actually do need these. I'm not 14 anymore. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred, that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. 
And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So this, pas this passage, we're going to move, we're not going to move through it sequentially. I think if we jump around a little bit, we'll get better clarity about what the author wants the audience to hear. And so let's go back to verses 16 and 17. For where a will is involved, for a will, I'm sorry, for, a will, for where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force, as long as the one who made it is alive. The word covenant in the Greek language can often be used to describe a will as well as a covenant. And the author of Hebrews is using both the word covenant and the word will to try to illustrate better for the audience what it actually is going to mean to inherit what is coming. In a will, there must be a giver and a receiver, and in a covenant, there's usually a, two groups of people, sometimes it's one person and another, in order for it to be in effect. In a will, an inheritance is not received or distributed until the death of the testator, and an attorney needs proof of that death, or the court needs proof of that death. And it's usually in the form of a paper copy of a death certificate. Today, the proof of death is a death certificate, a paper copy. But in the ancient Near East, the proof of death was actually blood. So let's look a little bit more closely now at this history, because we're going to see a little bit of a, a story unfold here. Verses 18 through 21. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. In the same way, he sprinkled with, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, most everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So really, in order to understand this blood and why it's so important, we have to understand the covenant mentality of the Old Testament. So covenants were really the foundation of how people functioned socially. And they were chosen relationships where two parties would come together and they would make some type of binding promises or agreements to one another. There were personal covenants that were between individuals, and then there were also political covenants that were between two kings or two nations. The hum but humanity's relationship was with God was all, has always been within a covenant agreement or a covenant relationship. These covenants contain and are very well-defined with obligations and commitments. It sounds a little bit like a modern-day contract. Like if I was going to go to the bank and borrow money, get a loan for a car, I would have to go through all the forms, and I would borrow the money. And if in the future, like a few years later, months or whatever, I was not able to make my payments, the bank would send somebody to my house to pick up my car, well, which was now going to be their car, and they would sell that car in order to gain back the money that they loaned to me. But God's covenants are much more relational 
and they're very personal. Like if I borrowed money from my mom and dad, which I wouldn't do and I don't think they would do, but if I borrowed money from my mom and dad to buy a car, they might be more gracious in the, in, at the point where I wasn't able to make the payments. They would be gracious and maybe patient because they love me, they want to see me be successful, they understand the context of my life, and they maybe give me some time to make those payments at a later date. But because they love me, they are going to have, make sure that I make that payment in full and pay back all of the money that I borrowed from them. In the Old Testament, we can find two different kinds of covenants. We see unconditional covenants and conditional covenants. In an unconditional covenant, there are no stipulations. It's, it's more like maybe a promise. Think about Noah and God's promise to him that he would never destroy the earth again. Noah didn't have to do anything in order for God to follow through. It was a promise that God kept. Conditional covenants, though, have stipulations. Think about the covenant that God had with the Israelites. There were definitely stipulations. God's covenant with Israel said that he would protect them and he would bless them as long as they kept the law and remained faithful only to him. Those were the stipulations. Follow the law and remain faithful and worship only him. He also promised to bring curse if they violated these stipulations. The Israelites had a covenant with God, and like a parent who loves their children desperately, God gave the Israelites many chances, chance and chance again, to pull it together, to obey the law, and to worship him as their only God. We see this play out in the book of Judges, which is why I said we were going to the book of Judges. We're actually doing that on Wednesday night. But we see this play out over time. It's kind of like this repetition. Disobedience. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Consequence. The Lord gave them into the hands of Midian. Disobedience. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And grace. The Lord raised up judges who saved them. When the Israelites turned back to God, there was often peace in the land until they wandered from God again the next time. God followed through with his consequences, but his grace was that parent desperately wanting their child to figure it out and get it right. I used this example on a Wednesday night, but this desperation that parents have for their kids to figure it out, we love you so much and we really need you to get this right. So you have a teenager at your house. This is completely hypothetical. You have a teenager at your house and said teenager is having some difficulty understanding simple economics. And so you share, you know, you can only spend your money once and so remember that next time you want to do something with your friends, if you're spending your money on coffee and going out to eat, the money's not going to be there for a later time. So a little time goes by, we watch the bank account, it might dwindle, and then teenager comes and says, can I borrow some money? 
my friends are going to go to the movie and then they're going to go out to eat, but I don't have any money. To which we would reply, hypothetically speaking, to which we would reply, geez, it's really hard when you can only spend your money once, right? We desperately want our kids, like God, to figure this life out. And so we, being the gracious parents that we are, offer a gas card because we're not going to put cash in the bank account. Parenting tip, gas card, not cash in the bank. And we're firm on the consequences of the choices that they have made. We need them to experience the consequences of their decision. And that's what we saw with God and the Israelites. There was consequence, but there was also grace. God did extend grace to Israel over and over again. Okay, so now let's get to this blood part. Keep in mind that the consequence of sin was death. The conditions of animal sacrifice in the Old Testament impressed upon Israel the seriousness of sin and disobedience. The blood of the animal symbolized the death of the person making the sacrifice. The sacrifice was the offering that brought the Israelites back into relationship with God. And the writer of Hebrews is using verses 18 through 21 as a reminder of the significance of the conditions of God's first covenant because he's wanting us to understand the new covenant. So it's a little bit of turning back in history. Last week, John asked a question or shared a question that he has often thought. Why did it have to be the blood of Jesus? Wasn't there another way that this could have been taken care of? Chapter tw or verse 22 says not. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The, this, as part of the um, first covenant, there was a means of reparations and atonement and purification. And that's what this blood sacrifice was. It was a way for Israel to re-enter into relationship with God. A relationship with humanity was at the heart of all of God's covenants with his people. And the consequence of sin is death. The sacrifice of an unblemished animal represents the sinner's death. The blood is proof of that death. And the result of the sacrifice is a return to relationship with God. And the blood sacrifice of the first covenant would never provide eternal redemption. It would never provide eternal forgiveness. And it would never provide an eternal relationship with God. But Jesus' blood would. He was the perfect, unblemished sacrifice. His blood was necessary. He was and is the only way to an eternal relationship with God. Now we're going to be able to go back to the beginning, verse 15, but we're going to pick up verse 14 as well to, so that we can understand 15 a little bit better. Verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from death, from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, 
He is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So there's therefore at the beginning of 15. So as always, we need to figure out what the therefore is therefore. And if we just rephrase it a little bit, and it, if it read, as a result of Jesus' blood, the perfect sacrifice offering, he is the mediator of the new covenant. But wait, there's a mediator in there. And a mediator means that there's some kind of conflict. So what is the conflict that we're talking about here? There's nothing the Israelites could do that could be sufficient in ending the separation between them and God. And there's no amount of good works or obedience that we can do that makes us righteous enough to stand before a holy God. When we hear mediation, we oftentimes also hear there's gonna be some kind of compromise, right? So a mediator is gonna bring two parties together that don't necessarily agree on something and they're both gonna to have to compromise like somehow meet in the middle. Everybody's gonna to have to give a little. But in this verse, it doesn't seem to represent compromise. Instead, it holds a much deeper meaning. It was Jesus himself that brought God and his people together. The blood of Jesus inaugurated this inheritance. It had to be Jesus. Do you ever think about the inheritance that people get, or maybe an inheritance that you will get, like cars and houses, boats, businesses, maybe a hotel chain like the Hiltons? Or maybe it's just a huge family fortune. I don't know. I've never thought much about it. Well, in 2020, the survey of customer finances reported that the median inheritance was $69,000. The average was over $700,000. And for trust funds, the median wealth transfer was $285,000. And the average was just over 4 million. Mm, I think there's gonna be some kids in my house that are real disappointed, because <laughs> we're way below average. <laughs> they also reported that 70% of wealthy families lose their wealth by the second generation, and 90% of wealthy families lose their wealth by the third generation. Clearly, these inheritance were not meant to last. But the inheritance of Jesus' blood inaugurated, can never, inaugurated an inheritance that can never be spent down and it will never get jammed up in any legal proceedings. Because it's an opportunity. It's not a thing. It's not a possession. It's an opportunity to be in relationship with God for eternity. This promised inheritance was for those who were part of the first covenant and all those who came after that believed that Jesus indeed offered himself as the final sacrifice on our behalf. 
the book of Hebrews has us on this pattern of looking back in order to look forward and really understand who Jesus is. Chapter 3 told us that Jesus is greater than Moses. Chapter 4 and 5 described Jesus as the greatest high priest. Chapter 8 explains why Jesus is the high priest of a better covenant. And in chapter 9, we see why Jesus' blood was necessary in the new covenant. There are some never-agains that we can count on. Most of them relate to the passage of time. We can never bring back our youth, or we can never stop aging. No amount of Botox, plastic surgery, working out, fillers are going to make that happen. We also know that we will never get this point in time together ever again. But we never ever again have to make the kind of sacrifice Jesus did in order to have or be in right relationship with God, our Creator, our Heavenly Father. The Bible shows us over and over again. This is an emphatic never again. It is the eternal once and for all that we can count on. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that you understood us and understand us better than we understand ourselves. That we were incapable, we are incapable of being perfect in pure obedience and worshiping and honoring you. So we thank you for Jesus as our covenant representative, the representative that took our sin and disobedience away once and for all, never to be needed again. Lord, I pray that your spirit would be active in us and that we would be able to understand and show that we are good stewards of this inheritance. We love you and we want to honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, please stand. Let's respond together.